Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is May 19th, and we will be discussing an article in the most recent foreign affairs entitled Data is Power. Um, what else is it entitled? Hold on. Washington needs to craft new rules for the digital age. Okay, there you go. Uh, how are you this morning? Uh, I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful Colorado morning. How are you doing this morning, David? I'm doing okay. I had a hard time getting up, but I'm happy to be up and happy to be discussing. <laughs> sometimes we discuss geopolitics, sometimes we discuss tech. It looks like today we're discussing both in today's episode. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, and actually, these guys uh, by Matthew, Jay Slaughter, and David H. McCormick, uh, it looks like from where they... What you've said many times, David, is is where you uh, stand depends on where you sit. Mm-hmm. And it looks like these guys are top-down kind of view. Yes, yeah, so we'll take a look at who they are. Matthew J. Slaughter is a Paul Danos Dean and Earl C. Down, professor of international business at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. So he's, a, he's an academician now, but he served as a member of the White House Economic Council of Economic Advisors from 2005 to 2007. That's under George W. Bush. David H. McCormick is CEO of Bridgewater Associates. Bridgewater Associates is a global macro investment firm. During the George W. Bush administration, he served in senior positions in the U.S. Commerce Department, National Security Council, and Treasury Department. So Bridgewater Associates, if we take a look at it, is a giant investment firm. Let me just kill ourselves here. Um... Asset management firm, their clients are pension funds, endowments, foundations, foreign governments, and central banks, and they have $140 billion under management, assets under management, which I think it's important to take all this stuff into account before we start, don't you? Uh, I definitely do, uh, because that's basically where they're coming from. That's their view. That's their background. That's their experience, and that's what they see, and that's important, Mm -hmm. very important. And if you disagree with this person, one reason might be that their thinking is fundamentally flawed, or one reason might be that their thinking fundamentally represents what you would think if you were in charge of a $140 billion (laughs) uh, investment management company. Absolutely. Or their thinking is, is you you don't know what that's like at all. And uh, I think it's also good for these podcasts for us. uh, I'm not ahead of uh, that much... I'm not a CEO of that type of an organization, but uh, it's good for these people to see other people's view. Yeah, uh, they know what they know, and they know they know it quite well. When they say what they know, wouldn't it be interesting to see? Well, how do other people take that? Mm-hmm. What do they think, and, and how do they interpret that? How do they digest that? And uh, so that's what just. Uh, us two sons of Sequoia will do right now. Yes. And I'm going to say, before we do this, we do this a lot with Foreign Affairs. We are subscribers to the magazine. We get the print magazine. We just use a digital version for the podcast. We encourage you all to take this discussion and maybe inspire you to subscribe to Foreign Affairs or another magazine that's thought-provoking with uh, experts and sort of have discussions of your own because that's sort of the whole point of this exercise, correct? Correct. And also, we're going to give our opinions. We're going to discuss it. But... We actually read what they say. Yes. Which is not what other people are doing. We're not taking something they say out of context. We're 
actually reading to you the entire article, and that may, I mean, in some definition of the term, run afoul of copyright, but we're, we're fair use. We're adding commentary and uh, analysis from our perspective. Yes. And that's what that's what our podcast is about, to, just to keep on talking and listen to what other people are saying. Yes. And we're going to listen to what they say. Uh, and we're not going to just talk about it. We're going to listen to what they say. And, and I mean, it's one thing to say, <clears throat> okay, let's look at what these guys do. Slaughter, he works at a business school, international business. He's got it. He's chaired. But he worked in the Bush administration. McCormick worked in the Bush administration. Now he uh, is the CEO of a $140 billion assets under management investment management company. Well, there's a lot of people in this world that would say, they're Bush guys, and this guy's an investment manager. I'm not going to take... I immediately discount everything they have to say because I'm a hyper-liberal or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's like, just because someone... Work for George W. Bush and owns an asset management company doesn't mean that they don't have good ideas. Um, and also, I think that what I said at the point, and of course, I've told you that I want to stop repeating myself as much, but um, it's important to say, you may disagree with him, but it's important to ask yourself, am I disagreeing with him because he's wrong? Or because that's not how I feel because I don't run a $140 billion investment management fund. It's an important question to ask yourself. If you were in his position, wouldn't you think the same way? Or the way I'd like to think of it is that whether we agree with them or not, listen to what they say and try to understand what they're talking about mm -hmm. and understand their side of it. You don't have to agree with it, but try to understand what the other person is saying. Mm -hmm. And then then you can develop your own opinion. Absolutely. But don't let, don't let other people develop your opinion for you. Yes. Develop your own. So shall we get into the article? I'm ready. Data is power. Washington needs to craft new rules for the digital age. By Matthew J. Slaughter and David H. McCormick. Data is now at the center of global trade. For decades, international trade in goods and services set the pace of globalization. After the global cr financial crisis, however, growth in trade plateaued, and, its, and in its place came an explosion of cross-border data flows measured by bandwidth, Cross-border data flows grew roughly 112 times over from 2008 to 2020. The global economy has become a perpetual motion machine of data. It consumes it, processes it, and produces ever more quantities of it. Digital technologies trafficking in data now enable, and in some cases have replaced, traditional trade in goods and services. Movies, once sold primarily as DVDs, now stream on digital platforms, and news, book, and research papers are consumed online. Even physical goods come laden with digital components. Cars are no longer merely chassis built around internal combustion engines. They also house complex electronics and software, capturing massive amounts of data. Trade in physical goods also comes with digital enablers, such as devices and programs that track shipping containers, and these likewise generate data and improve efficiency. And now, COVID-19 has sped up the digital transformation of business, pushing even more commerce into the cloud. Digital trade and the cross-border flow of data show no signs of slowing. In 2018, 330 million people made online purchases from other countries, each involving the cross-border transmission of data, helping e-commerce hit $25.6 trillion in sales, even though only about 60% of the world is online. Imagine how much data will grow as broadband access spreads to the developing world's rapidly expanding populations. 
5G wireless technology allows even more extraordinary amounts of data to transfer at lightning speed, and the so-called Internet of Things dramatically increases machine-to-machine communication. These massive changes are not merely transforming trade, they are also upending global politics. Even more than other elements of the global economy, data is intertwined with power, and, as an increasingly necessary input for innovation, a rapidly expanding element of international trade, a vital ingredient in corporate success, and an important dimension of national security. Data offers incredible advantages to all who hold it. It is also readily abused. The countries and companies that seek anti-competitive advantages try to control data. So do those that wish to undermine liberty and privacy. Yet, even as cross-border flows of data have surged and data itself has become a critical source of power, it remains largely ungoverned. The current international trade and investment framework was designed 75 years ago in a very different time. It advanced prosperity and security, helped lift millions out of poverty, and, as part of a broader economic order, encouraged democracy, commerce, and individual rights. But this system is not adequate for the reality of global trade today. Confusion about the value and ownership of data abounds, and major world powers have competing visions of how to manage it. The United States, if the United States does not shape new rules for the digital age, others will. China, for example, is promulgating its own techno-authoritarian model, recognizing that shaping the rules of digital power is a key component of geopolitical competition. The United States should offer an alternative with a coalition of willing partners. It should set up a new framework, one that unleashes data's potential to drive innovation, generate economic power, and protect national security. Wow. Well, that's a very Bush language. Uh, Coalition of willing partners, right? That's what we had in Iraq. Uh, yeah, when I hear that, oh, so many things goes through my mind. Uh, he he sets the stage. He makes some good arguments. Uh, again, he's looking at international trade, national security, and how to regulate from top down. And... Uh, well, my my thinking is because I'm not up there at the top. My thinking is how will people use the data? Uh, and so, yeah, you're regulating it, but then uh, how will how will the Zuckerbergs, <laughs> how will the Gate, how will they use that data? Mm-hmm. See what I mean? And uh, yeah, you you're talking about international trade, and that's important. But also, right along with that is different societies. Uh, that have access to this information and Internet of Things, it's just it's just going to explode with uh, ethics, ethical uh, use, uh, uh, oversight, uh, responsibility and integrity of, of use of the data. And uh, wow, it's he, he, he makes a good point. What, what did you get out of this? Well, I did. I mean. A lot of times these opening paragraphs, they're very aspirational, these opening segments. And this one is no different. Um, He's basically saying, and I I agree with him, the current international trade and investment framework was designed 75 years ago. Right. Um, so So he's looking at it from a perspective of the trade and investment framework has become dependent on data. 
But when the trade and investment framework in the 1960s, 50s, was established, maybe even 40s, um, data wasn't as big of a component of your strategy and your tactics and your skills. You know, it just didn't exist. So we need to sort of take this new huge input, uh, you know, the value of ownership and data into account when crafting new rules. Well, he doesn't say what those rules are going to be, but he does say there's a cost for not doing it now. If we don't do it now, someone's going to step up and be the leader. You know, someone will say, hey, well, we'll do it. And that person might be China and maybe these huge corporations where they can hoard your data and they know more about you than the government or than you know about yourself. Um, and so the United States should sort of say, let's take ourselves and the neoliberal Western democracies and advanced, you know, economies. And I mean, maybe even some emerging economies and say, let's all agree to play by these rules and and, you know, in an aspirational world, because these opening sections are always aspirational, what will these rules do? They'll drive innovation, generate economic power, and protect national security. Now, if China's rules drive innovation faster, generate economic power faster, but sort of completely dismiss our national security in favor of theirs, will people sign on to that? Because it's like my company can make 5% more a year by the autocratic rules of, of an alternative option. And I think that's that's an issue that you have to sort of be wary of. It's a very real issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And COVID-19, as he said, sped up this uh, digital transformation in businesses and commerce. Uh, but also it, it's, it, it, it is going to affect the societies. Mm -hmm. And those societies will follow uh, the businesses because... There's where the livelihood is. Yeah. And and who's going to be controlling that? The people who control the data. Mm. Uh, why? The people who control the data control the information. People who control the information will control uh, uh, commerce, just like he was saying. Mm -hmm. it, it is a very important point. It's a very important point. And this point can be applied to all different types of uh, uh, parts of the world right now. It's really kind of a, uh, we are in a transition uh, in our, it's almost like uh, like like at the end of World War II, things completely began to change uh, before World War II, like in the early uh, uh, 20th century and then the mid to late 20th century, things really changed. Well, I think the 21st century, we have the same kind of transformation and we have to think about uh, how to move forward here. And uh, it's not obvious uh, what what there is to do, but it is obvious that you better do something. Mm -hmm. And craft rules that are in line with the, the state of play as it is. And looking forward to where this is going to lead. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, he, that's what he's saying. Uh, the other problem with this is that uh, things, the, the internet, COVID-19, things are, uh, are changing so rapidly, so quickly that I think what, what happens a lot of times is that they will draft rules that apply today uh, or yesterday and not really think about how that's going to change tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think we need some innovative thinking, uh, people to think ahead to say, we've got to do something today uh, because it's not going to change five years and 10 years from now. It's going to change 
next month. Yeah. And and when it changes next month, the month after that, after that, and you'll find yourself in a hole that you can't come out of, dig out of. Yeah, I heard a, uh, I forget who it was. It was some futurist or entre- billionaire entrepreneur or someone talking about the dangers of AI. And they said, you know, we had all this National Highway Transportation Safety Agency data that if we implemented seatbelts, we could save hundreds of thousands of lives. And so it went to Congress, and 14 years later, we had a seatbelt law nationwide. Um, with AI, if we see that a general artificial intelligence is a threat, like in 14 months, the nature of the threat will be an order of magnitude greater. You know, in 14 years, like we won't have any chance of controlling it. So the speed at which we move, in many ways, isn't really designed for the way that the the speed at which our political institutions move isn't really designed for the way that our economic and technological innovation moves. They're out of sync. But I guess he's saying just because they're out of sync doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do something about it. (laughs) Right? Just because there's a disparity doesn't mean you should do nothing about the disparity and allow it to continue to grow. Maybe you should try to sort of rein them in. David, that was a very good point. And wow, that that's a good point, not only for this paper, but for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should start, people should sit down and stop living in the past and start thinking of the future and do what needs to be done today. Well said, David. Well, shall we continue? Yeah, let's continue. Innovation ever after. Oh, all right. I'm ready for you. You may read it. Yeah, do you want to? Okay. Uh, Economists have long recognized that productivity per worker is the best indicator of a country's average standard of living and overall economic power. The The higher a country's productivity, the higher the average household income and higher the population's material well-being will be. Moreover, the higher a country's productivity, the larger the country's overall tax base will be giving more funds to the government for national defense and other interests. How can a country raise its productivity? It can invest in the capital used to create things, buildings, machinery, software, and the like, or it can create new ideas, innovations that allow workers to either make existing products more efficiently or make entirely new products. Indeed, innovation has long driven the United States rising productivity, accounting for well over half the U.S. per capita GDP growth over the past century. Data has always been an essential input for discovering new ideas. Benjamin Franklin needed data on lightning strikes to improve humans' understanding of electricity. Gregor Mendel needed data on pea plants to discover rules of heredity. But in the past past decade or so, data has become far more important to innovation thanks to major advances in computing power, cloud storage, and machine learning. The algorithms at the heart of artificial intelligence benefit particularly from vast quantities of high-quality data, which they use to learn and gain efficacy. These and other data-driven innovations will increasingly shape people's professional and personal lives, improving everything from autonomous vehicles to sports performance apps to to social networks. The surge in the use of data holds great economic potential for a powerful yet simple reason. Data is what economists call non 
rival. Nearly all economic goods and services are rival, meaning their use by one person or firm precludes their use by someone else. A barrel of oil, for instance, is rival, but data is non-rival. It can be used simultaneously and repeatedly by any number of firms or people without being diminished. The widespread notion that data is the new oil misses this essential economic difference between the two commodities. Data can power innovation again and again without being depleted, more like the limitless supply of sunshine than the limit, limited supply of oil. If the United States does not shape new rules for the digital age, others will. Because data is non-rival, innovation and thus economic power increasingly hinges on the quantity and quality of data available to people, companies, and countries. Data can be used and reused. So the more freely it flows, the more likely it is to spark new ideas. Consider the world's fight against COVID-19. On January 10, 2020, more than a month after the first case the first cases appeared. Chinese scientists posted the genetic sequence of the novel corona online, coronavirus online. Armed with this essential data, scientists at the US company Moderna took only two days to create the blueprint for what would become the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Moderna had already researched the concept of a vaccine based on messenger RNA. All it needed to create something valuable from this new idea was new data. Access to data has been revolutionizing other areas of life sciences. In just 13 years, the Human Genome Project, a U.S.-led international public initiative, sequenced and published the data on 3 billion DNA-based pairs that constitute the human genome. One study estimated that from 1988 to 2010, this project led to a total economic impact of $796 billion, including over $244 billion in additional personal income from over 300,000 new jobs. Data increasingly drives commercial success. Companies whose competitive advantages are built and by, by aggregating, analyzing, and using data have, have seized top market positions across the globe. 10 years ago, any list of the 10 most valuable firms included oil and gas producers, consumer goods firms, and banks. Today, technology companies that traffic and data dominate the list. BHP Group, Chevron, and ExxonMobil have given way to Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook. The current crop of technology leaders thrives in no small part because they transform vast amounts of data from billions of individuals and organizations into new economic value for their customers. Data is crucial to national security too. It drives productivity and thus the economic power that underwrites the United States military edge. It is also a primary domain of US-Chinese competition for economic and geopolitical superiority, as demonstrated, for example, by the two countries' battle over 5G technology. New technologies offer tremendous economic and strategic advantages. In the words of Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, and Robert Work, former U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, data-enabled AI will be, quote, the most powerful tool in generations for benefiting humanity, end quote. 
but it will also be, quote, used in the pursuit of power, end quote. The country that can harness data to innovate faster will gain enormous advantages. And so the United States future prosperity and geopolitical strength will largely depend on the rules governing access to data. That was pretty powerful. You got your mute on. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, I like to mute myself when you read just so that I'm not making noise. Um, yeah, wow. that was sort of the state of play. That wasn't really any um, suggestions for the way forward. It's just, yes, data right. has infiltrated our lives. And I think that by virtue of being on the National Security Council, even though it was 12, 13, 14 years ago, you could say, yes, and data is extremely important to the U.S. military. Well, I'm sure that their knowledge, inside baseball knowledge of how important it is, pales in comparison to 13 years later. <laughs> Very good point. Very yeah. good point. That's right. I mean, it was important then. It's crucial today. It's, yes. it's paramount. But also the rival and non-rival, that, that's a really good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's kind of like the basis of why this thing is growing so fast. Because you could just multiply this thing. Yes. Well, I think of, I mean, this is, uh, when he talks about, you know, Exxon, Chevron, BHP have been replaced by Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook. Well, Alphabet's Google, and Facebook especially, I mean, Amazon also, to a certain extent, but the data that they get is from their users, you know? So it's like they become sort of this monolith. They don't have this data because they're a powerful company. They have this data because they have customers and they have users. That's, I mean, their users are generating the data. They're selling the data to their customers. So if you use Google, you're not the customer, you're a user. But still, um, it's, it's a fascinating thing where it's like your technology has to be good enough for someone to adopt it before that technology can generate the data that you need to make the money. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The rule, to, in my mind, what you're saying is the rules are changing. Mm -hmm. The rules of dig a well, pull out the oil, and sell a barrel of oil for for 30 bucks. That's not the rules anymore. Mm -hmm. And the rival, non-rival is part of it. But what you said is even a bigger part of it, that that it, it's no longer a who's the product and who's the data, uh, where's the data coming from and who's the product and who's the, who's the uh, customer. It's It's very, very different today. I mean, you could have the most sophisticated data collection app in the history of man. If someone installs your app and uses it, you'll know more about them than they know about themselves and the U.S. government knows about them than Facebook or Google knows about them. But if less than 100,000 people install the app, the value that you'll bring to the marketplace is far less than Facebook or Google because they have hundreds of millions or billions of users. Mm -hmm. so, so the data is like a reservoir. Okay. Uh, one is acquiring the data. So you're talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're saying. Once you have that data, uh, then what he's addressing here is what do you do with the data? Yeah. How do you use the data? And there's a whole spectrum 
uh, there of AI, uh, machine learning. Uh, do you look at the individuals? Do you take those individuals and look at the culture? Do you look at the ec economics? Do you look at the business? Do you look at the society? Do you look at voting? Do you look at trends? You know, and so then you have that aspect of it, the analytics aspect of it. And uh, but once you have that data and it's a reservoir, uh, that reservoir is extremely powerful. Uh, the size of it. Yes, and the size but, is on a scale like un that's unprecedented in the history of the world. So a lot right. like a lot of the techniques that you learned when you were getting your PhD in statistics are still completely viable. But a lot of the jobs out there are how do you turn this reservoir of data into something that's usable to apply those techniques to? The techniques don't change. The theory doesn't change. The applications do. Yes, but but the thing that, that precedes the techniques is you have more data that passes through fiber optic cables that goes on the internet in one hour than existed in the history of man when you were in school. So you're generating more data in one hour than existed, you know, when you were studying the techniques. Well, to, for the techniques to be uh, usable, you have to take from this huge pool of data, extract what you need, and then apply the techniques to them to get, you know, the results you want. So that's what a lot of the jobs are. How do you take a look at this data that's available to you, extract it, and then give it to someone that knows how to apply the techniques on it? Yeah, when, like when I was learning it, it was all about you're assuming a population, you have a sample, and you analyze the sample. Today, that sample is pretty much the population. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not the entire population, but it's 90% or 80%, 90%. It's not like 2% or 1% or one-tenth of 1%. And so when you have that magnitude, uh, the statistics are different. The analysis is different. But there's still, I mean, you still can't predict with 100% accuracy. Look at like prognostication of elections. Like they screwed up in 2016. Well, yeah, well, well, the point is, uh, what do you do with the data? How do, you, how, do you, how do you analyze the data? If you have, if you use small statistics, small sample statistics on close to population, it's not it's not going to work the same. But the polling was more extensive in 2016 than any election that preceded it, and they got the result wrong. And I, I want to walk this back. They didn't screw up. They gave it a confidence interval. They gave Hillary an 80% chance of winning. And as someone who loves betting on horses, I love to see a 5-1 to one underdog come in. Um, you know, my 5 bucks wins me 25. And that happens. That happens when you go to the racetrack. And you don't, when the five to one underdog comes in and you get your 25 bucks from your $5 bet, you don't say, boy, those odd makers really screwed up. All they have to do is put the odds on and this five to one underdog won. Sometimes the underdog wins. That's why they put odds on it. That's why it's not 100% that the, the favorite's going to win. Well, but in, in that particular case, <laughs> uh, what, what were they actually measuring? Yes. Uh, they were measuring this and they were interpreting it over here and the interpretation and the measurements were not necessarily the same things. And yet still, like, if someone's a 5-1 to one underdog, you say, oh, there's a, probably maybe a 20% chance they'll win. You know, 80% of the time they won't win. That's why we'll pay you 5-1 to one on your money. Uh, or 4-1 to one on your money. And um, it's the same with the election. They're like, the confidence interval is that it's an 80% chance Hillary will win. It's like, well, that's a confidence interval. And 20% is a big... You know, if you roll the die 
and said, <laughs> and it said, you know, if it comes up five, you know, you have to go to jail. But if it comes up one, two, three, four, or six, you don't. Would you roll the die? No, you wouldn't. Like those odds suck. So, um, but do you see what I'm saying? Now we're getting into like a statistical yeah. discussion. Yeah. Um, so, I think that even in with the massive amounts of data where you're sort of getting the whole population and you have these techniques you're applying to it, you can't predict the future. You're still only guessing and there can be anomalies that come out of it, right? True, true. Now, but, as, but as is, AI gets better, will those anomalies become fewer and fewer? Yeah, because you can model the anomalies. Mm -hmm. Because as you get more data and, but see, in the past, we couldn't model we couldn't model all the the anomalies. There's so many, so many factors. Today we're starting to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And and you're talking about parametric statistics. You don't even don't even, you don't even move away from parametric statistics and look at the data. Yeah. Look at Bayesian Bayesian approaches. Anyway, we're getting into the statistics part, but let the data define what the future is. Yeah. Uh, don't let your don't your, let your assumptions of your parameters to do that. Yeah, let's get back to the policy. Yeah. Uh, back to the article by McCormick and what's his face, the main author, Slaughter, <laughs> Slaughter uh -huh. and McCormick. Here we go. A patchwork of rules. Back to the article okay. here, folks. Current okay. international institutions are not equipped to handle the proliferation of data, nor are they prepared to address the emerging fault lines in how to approach it. The institutional framework for international trade, that of the World Trade Organization, and its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, was built at a time when mainly agricultural and manufactured goods cross borders and data flows were in the realm of fiction. The WTO's framework depends on two key classifications, whether something is a good or a service and where it originated. Goods are governed by different trade rules than our services, and a product's origin defines what duties or trade restrictions apply. Data defies this basic characterization for several reasons. One is the vast amounts of data, such as one's online browsing before ordering clothes are unpriced consequences of the production and consumption of other goods and services. Another is that it is often hard to determine where data is created and kept. From which country does data on an international flight's engineering performance originate? In which country does a multinational firm's cloud storage of its clients' data reside? Moreover, there is no agreed-on taxonomy for valuing data. In the event of a trade dispute, WTO members may seek legal recourse and ask the organization to make a one-off correction, but such fixes do not address the fundamental inconsistencies between the WTO's framework and the nature of data. The lack of an internationally accepted framework governing data leaves big questions about the global economy and national security unanswered. Should sovereign governments be able to limit the location and use of their citizens' data within national borders? What does this concept even mean when the cloud and its data are distributed across the internet? Should governments be able to tax the arrival of data from other nations, just as they levy tariffs on the import of many goods and services? How would this work when the data flows themselves are often unpriced, at least within the firms that gather the data? What controls can sovereign governments impose on data entering their countries? Can they demand that data be stored locally or that they can be given access to it? The absence of an international framework also threatens people's privacy. 
who will ensure that governments or other actors do not misuse people's data and violate their economic, political, and human rights? How can governments protect their citizens' privacies while allowing data to move across borders? Today, the United States and the EU do not agree on answers to these questions, causing friction that hurts cooperation on trade, investment, and national security. China, for its part, has shown little commitment to privacy. Surprise, surprise. Without common and verifiable methods of anonymizing data to protect personal privacy, the innovative potential of personal data will be lost or fundamental rights will be violated. In the absence of coherent and collective answers to these questions, countries and trade blocs are improvising on their own. This has left the world today with a collection of inconsistent, vague, and piecemeal regulations. Recent regional trade deals have included several provisions regarding, regarding data on e-commerce. The Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, blah, 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 blah. The Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which does not include the United States, prohibits requirements that data be stored within a given country and bans duties on cross-border flows of electronic content. It recognizes the growing importance of the digital services sector, and it forbids signatories from demanding access to the source codes of company softwares. The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement has similar provisions. Both free trade agreements aim to allow unencumbered flows of data, but they are largely untested and, by virtue of being regional, are limited. The EU sharpened its data rules on privacy in the General Data Protection Regulation. The GDPR attempts to empower individuals to decide how companies can use their data, but many have voiced concerns that the GDPR has effectively established trade barriers for foreign firms operating in EU member countries by requiring expensive compliance measures and raising the European market's liability risks. Moreover, the EU's rules are subject to continual dispute and litigation. Of much greater concern to the United States is China's distinct digital ecosystem. Over a generation ago, China began building its Great Firewall, a combination of laws and technologies that restrict the flow of data in and out of China. In part by blocking foreign websites, China has since adopted a techno-nationalist model that mandates government access to data generated in the company. In the country, the sheer quantity of data that fuels China's innovation uh, but also enables the country's repressive system of control and surveillance, and at the expense of open international flows of data. Beijing now seeks to expand this model. It has clear plans to use its indigenous technology industry to dominate the digital platforms that manage data, most immediately 5G telecommunications networks. To that end, it has unveiled an audacious plan, China Standards 2035, to set global standards in emerging technologies. And through the so-called Digital Silk Road and the broader Belt and Road Initiative, it is working to spread its model of data governance and expand its access to data by building inter Internet infrastructure abroad and boosting digital trade. And the United States? At the federal level, the country has not settled on any legal framework, nor beyond the USMCA has it engaged in any meaningful cross-border agreements on data flows. So far, far, the United States has not answered China's efforts with a coherent plan to shape technology standards or ensure widespread privacy protections. The United States' ad hoc responses and targeted efforts to encourage other countries to reject Chinese company Huawei's 5G technology may work in the near term, but they do not constitute a long-term plan for harnessing the power of data. There we go. Wow. I don't know. It's 
Each of these sections are very powerful. Yes. Very, very informative. These guys know what they're talking about. Uh-huh. But they have their perspective. They do. And it's it's surprisingly, well, we haven't gotten to their plan yet. No, not yet. But I, they're setting the stage quite well, aren't they? Yeah, I haven't heard any nuts and bolts. Because, um, you know, you'd expect George Bush era neocons to be like, this plan must protect private industries. You know, this plan must protect uh, institutional investors from Chinese undue influence of the Chinese. And I mean, if I had to guess the type of institution that they'll advocate for the rules protecting, it'll be institutions not dissimilar to Bridgewater Associates, you know, investment management companies with $140 billion of assets under management. That'll be their suggestion. But there's a chance that there's trickle-down protection. You protect asset flows. You may protect individual privacy. Uh, you may sort of prevent a company like China. I mean, it's an authoritarian digital system there. They sort of they take a look at all your activity, and they assign you a social credit score. And if your credit score drops too low, you can't use public transportation. You can't travel within the country. It's It's kind of dystopian when you think about it. <laughs> a lot of a lot of the things that they're doing. And it would suck if that became the global model. Uh-huh. So <laughs> that's true, David. Well said. Yeah. It, so so it, it would suck. If that became, became the global model, it would suck. I think we can all agree on that. So so they have a point. And um I mean, I think in America, too, saying, oh, they're going to propose something that helps them. And say, yes, but will it help you more than the alternative, too? You know? And and if someone's leading the charge, let's sort of establish standards that allow us to dictate the digital future, standards and practices across the globe. Like, and that'll preserve some modicum of free speech, of right to privacy, of free flows of information. That'll be good for everyone, you know? And I think that's the argument that he's about to make. And I'm sure that there's something in it for him, but there may be something in it for all of us. Mm -hmm. But that argument could be made even by China. Mm -hmm. That's true. Because, and there are people in China says, hey, this is good. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're in the part that actually get, get benefit. Everyone in China says it's good that you'd ask. If you ask someone and they say it's bad, they're probably not in China. <laughs> They're probably not in China, or they won't be there for long. Yeah. They'll disappear like it's... Jack Ma. Have you heard about Jack Ma? No. Shall we go on a quick field trip down <laughs> Google Way? Why not? Let's, We're here. Let's hear the story of Jack Ma. Chinese business magnate. Um... Alibaba CEO Jack Ma disappeared for three months. Ah. Uh, That's the type of thing that happens to billionaires. Imagine if Zuckerberg disappeared for three months and he came back and he said, I trust the U.S. government. They're great. People would be like, whoa, what's going on here? You know? Um, we get, Let's not get too into that because that's off the point of what we're trying to discuss today. Correct? Well, that it is. That That's... 
that's like a result of something that he's talking about. If you allow draconian tactics in the digital sphere, you'll allow it in the physical sphere as well. It's it it will happen. It will definitely happen. Yeah, uh, but I'm like as you said, I'm sure he's going to propose solutions uh, that that fold right into uh, supporting uh, large global funds. Mm-hmm. But that's not but, necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily. Uh, not at all. Well, I think also. But also, you, the, also the use he'll probably be using uh, the different arguments to support his and the different evidence of this to support his argument. And he's the second author. the The lead author is a international business school at Dartmouth guy. So I'm sure it's more like, you know, the the international liberal world order and the traditional free flow of goods and services will benefit from a data regime. China's model is kind of illiberal. It's sort of like we, we read about it in the last time we did an article, how they sort of debt trap diplomacy and this type of stuff. And I'm sure that as an international business professor, it's like, I don't like to see that. I would rather see, you know, traditional means of international growth. And that coincides with this framework for data that we're going to propose now. Right? Yeah. Right. So do you want to read the next section? Uh, A framework for flows. Okay. China has a vision for the digital age. The United States does not. Much of the discussion in Washington is too narrow concerning privacy, antitrust issues, and liability. These are essential matters, yet it is vital to keep in mind the immense economic potential of data, and not just data produced in the United States, because data is non-rival. There will be major potential losses for those countries that fail to access it and use it. Consider autonomous vehicles. This idea is no longer new, and in many countries, New teams of engineers and scientists could, in principle, come together to work on safe and functional autonomous vehicles. But their critical input for success is data. Vast quantities of data on driving uh, created by sensor-equipped vehicles. Any country that does not permit companies to access individuals' driving data will struggle to develop this industry. Or think of all the AI possibilities in healthcare that will require vast amounts of x-rays, CAT scans, and other diagnostic data to create innovations that will save and enhance the quality of lives. Large countries with, for example, many people driving many vehicles on many roads or many doctors ordering many CAT scans have an inherent advantage when it comes to data. If small countries such as Singapore and Sweden do not have access to data outside their borders, they could lose out. To some, this possibility of a data advantage for large nations might not seem worth worrying about. After all, the 20th century demonstrated that small countries can achieve high productivity and high standards of living. They were, they were able to do so because ideas spread relatively easily around the world and because innovation didn't require that much data. But there is growing evidence that what's past will not be prologue The quantity of data a country can access may result in a sustainable productivity advantage. Today, a vast amount of data is needed to refine ideas into economically productive uses. As the AI expert Kai-Fu Lee has said, a very good scientist with a ton of data will beat a super scientist with a modest amount of data. 
To avoid missing out on these advantages and to fill the vacuum being filled by China, the United States should help craft a new multilateral framework for data. Working with all willingly, uh, working with all willing and like-minded nations, it should seek a structure for data that maximizes its immense economic polit uh, potential without sacrificing privacy and individual liberty. This framework should take the form of a treaty that has two main parts. First would be a set of binding principles that would foster the cross-border flow of data in the most data-intensive sectors, such as energy, transportation, and healthcare. One set of principles concerns how to value data and determine where it was generated, just as traditional trade regimes require goods and services to be priced and their origins defined. So too, must this framework create a taxonomy to classify data flows by value and source. Another set of principles would set forth the privacy standards that governments and companies would have to follow to use data. Anonymizing data Made, made easier by advances in encryption and quantum computing will be critical to this step. A final principle, which would be conditional on achieving the other two, would be to promote a much cross-border and open flow of data as possible. Consistent with a long-established value of free trade, the party should, for example, agree to not levy taxes on data flows and diligently force that rule. And they would be wise to ensure that any negative impacts of open data flows, such as job losses or reduced wages, are offset through strong programs to help affected workers adapt to the digital economy. Such standards would benefit every sector they applied to. Envision, for example, dozens of nations with data sharing arrangements for autonomous vehicles, oncology treatments, and clean tech batteries. Relative to their experience in today's uh, balkanized world, researchers would be able to discover more data-driven innovations and in more countries rather than just those and already have a large presence in their industries. The second part of the framework would be free trade agreements regulating the capital goods, uh, intermediate inputs, and final goods and services of the targeted sectors, all in an effort to maximize the gains that might arise from data-driven innovations. Thus, would the traditional forces of comparative advantage and global competition help bring new self-driving vehicles, new life-saving chemotherapy compounds, and new sources of renewable energy to participating countries around the world? There is already a powerful example of such agreements. In 1996, dozens of countries accounting for nearly 95% uh, of, of world trade in information technology ratified the Information Technology Agreement a multilateral trade deal under the WTO. The agreement ultimately eliminated all tariffs for hundreds of IT-related capital goods, intermediate inputs, and final products, from machine tools to motherboards to personal computers. The agreement proved to be an important impetus, uh, impetus for the subsequent wave of the IT revolution, a competitive spur that led to productivity gains for firms and price declines for consumers. So now he's starting to propose some principles. You're, you're muted. Yeah, I do. Uh, he's starting to propose some stuff. He's a free trade guy too, which of course uh -huh. is in line with 
sort of Bush era economics, and that's fine. Um, and he's saying, you know, free trade, like take the international technology agreement, really helped consumers and it helped markets build faster than they would have. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do we have free trade right now in data? I mean, obviously not with China, but the free flow of trade, do we have to open those data flows to smaller countries so that they can participate? Or do we just export technologies that we were able to generate from those data flows to them? And they're allowed to buy it. You know, do you see what I'm saying? I think so. So like they say, the self-driving cars in a small country like Singapore or Sweden would be tough because they don't, they can't collect as much data. And it's like, well, why don't they have their economy? Why don't they, you know, drill for oil in the North Sea and then use that money to pay us for the cars that we developed with technological innovation? You know, why should they have access to the same resources that we do because we have a larger market? That's a... Sort of, that's another argument for free trade. Why don't you, you know, focus on an area where you're specialized? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I probably need to read this again. Yes. But it sounds sounds to me he like he's his principles here is is using trade as an argument uh, for the cross border flow of information. Uh, not only the argument, but also the benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, of that, uh, he kind of sidestepped any type of, uh, uh, you know, personal integrity or personal privacy or anything like that. Yes, uh, just focus. He's just focusing on the business side. But also saying, okay, you, let's take the model of let's take the framework we use for trade and export it to data, and maybe he'll talk about that in the next section. But they're fundamentally different. Um, they are. You know, like eliminating tariffs on machined tools, on motherboards, on personal computers, that's fundamentally different than eliminating tariffs on transfers of anonymized data of 100 million users to a company, you know, across. That's, I mean, I don't, I don't see how it's, it's apples and oranges, I guess is what I'm saying. In my mind, I'm sure that if he were here, he may be able to explain to us it's not apples and oranges because here's a concrete example of how it could work. But I don't see how it could work because I'm not that quick. Well, I don't. I don't I, there again, this is out of my field. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure he can explain it, and he's probably right. But in my mind, uh, as someone outside looking in, I'm thinking, well, how can how can these principles from legacy systems apply to innovative technologies? It seems like it's a, it's a it's a different set of rules. Uh, there's a different playbook here. But maybe, like you said, the the principles stay the same, like with statistical analysis. It's just that the inputs become different. You know, maybe he's thinking the same way economically. The principles of how you move things forward are the same. It's just that the input is now data, and we need to sort of craft the input collection and distribution rules around a new reality. It's the same with data and statistics. Like, yeah, but... Because that's your field. It, it is. But when he talks about rival and non-rival type of approach uh, for definitions, it seems to me like, well, you'll apply these things very differently. And uh, yeah, the principles may be the same, but when you apply them, the applications are going to be changing. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't apply the theory directly 
the application changes. And uh, yeah, the statistics doesn't change, but it's applied differently. Uh, you don't you don't have small sample statistics when you have large samples, that type of thing. Uh, I, I know. I I just uh, again, I'm sure what he's saying here is is grounded. I respect. I respect. I their expertise. Yeah, as their expertise very much so. Uh, but I guess I just don't understand them. Uh -huh. uh, I guess where I came from, you question. You always question why. I don't understand that. Uh, and here's why. You know that. Yeah, uh, the principles are founded, but when you start applying these to innovative technologies, and he went defining the rival and non-rival uh, type products, does it really apply directly? Well, uh, I said, do the principles apply directly? And I think that that's one thing that we're missing in modern discourse is that everybody's an expert. And if you don't really understand what he's saying, you just mischaracterize it and say, this guy's stupid and I'm smart. But the thing is, I may not see what he's saying because his understanding is more nuanced than mine. Maybe I'm stupid and he's smart and I just don't get that A to B to C connection of how this two-pronged framework will lead to a, a more. But let's go back and just real quick take a look at the two prongs of his philosophy. Well, you before know? you do that, before you do that, let me just comment about stupid and smart. <laughs> that that I, I don't see it that way at all. I see it as that he's very smart with what he knows. Well, we're asking questions. If you can explain it to us, then you understand it. If you can't explain it to us, then maybe you need to rethink what you're saying. Yeah. You know, maybe you're down in the weeds here. You need you need to emerge and say, okay, here's how this is going to work. If we see it from our perspective, then how can if we can't see it from our perspective, other people are not going to see it from their perspective, and maybe it needs to be refined. I'm not saying it's wrong, yes. and I'm not saying we're stupid. I'm saying, hey, we're questioning it. Uh, 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 let's come together. Let's bring uh, different minds together. Yes. So David, I have, I've learned that I have learned from people that not in my area so much by just listening to them. Mm -hmm. And you're yeah, more, was, I think you're more likely to respect someone that's not in your area than someone that, that is. You know, Very if, much so, because the, they have a different perspective. Or if the person was out of your area and they were saying the same things, you'd be more likely to agree with them than the, if they were in your area and saying the same things. Because it's like, no, I'm an expert in this area. Like, do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. I'd say, you know, not stupid and smart. I'm just saying, I'm saying the modern discourse, not this podcast, but like if you look at a news program, they'll take this guy's article and they'll mischaracterize his argument and they'll say, this is dumb. But I'm saying maybe through the first read, because we didn't read this beforehand, I don't quite understand what he's getting at or I don't quite understand how his framework works. And that could be that his framework isn't developed enough for me to understand, or that could be that my understanding isn't developed enough for me to understand. I'm willing to accept both potential outcomes. But let's take a look real quick. The two-pronged, okay. let's parse, oops. This framework to, should take the form of a treaty that has two main parts. The first would be a set of binding principles that would foster cross-border flow of data in the most data-intensive sectors, such as energy, transportation, and healthcare. Um, so they're trying to value, taxonom, ta um, classify, and set a set of principles with privacy standards. Now, that's all easy and well said. The devil's in the details there, but okay. So 
binding principles for cross-border flow of data and data intensity. The uh, second would be a framework for free trade agreements regulating the capital goods, intermediate inputs, and final goods and services of the targeted sectors. Um, now, so he's just talking about a limited number of data-intensive industries. And then he's saying, so you take industries that thrive with the use of data, namely, and he named them, energy, transportation, and healthcare. And then you build a free trade agreements around the capital goods, intermediate inputs, and final goods and services of these targeted sectors with the new rules that you've established uh, for, for cross-border flows of information. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure in his mind, in his experience, in his intelligence, he's, he's focusing on a very specific outcome. Yes, and I, th I see actually now I have more respect by parsing it because he's saying, let's take three data intensive industries. Well, he names three energy, transportation, and healthcare. Let's establish a set of principles and rules around data flows between nations and organizations in those sectors. And then, after we've established those principles and rules and we're operating within those rules, let's establish a free trade agreement framework regulating the goods, intermediate inputs, and final you know, outputs of those industries after we've established the rules. And so it's like you start with big data-intensive industries like healthcare, transportation, and energy, and then you realize that every industry is data-intensive, and you, but you have a framework with those industries to export that model to other industries. Right. So I, I see what he's saying now. And I, I mean, I understand that it's better to start there than to throw your hands up and say, we can't do this. Because, yeah, start with the, with the obvious. Mm -hmm. Start with the most, the, the largest. The low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit. Start with that because it's big. Uh, it's going to have impact. It's going to be very visible. Uh, and uh, it's going to be so important that people will pay attention to it. And once it's there, then you move on. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. Another thing I didn't understand uh, was his taxonomy to classify data flow by value and source. Uh, just as traditional trade uh, regimes require goods and services to be priced and their origin defined, so too must this framework create a taxonomy to classify data flows by value and source. Why? I don't understand why that would be necessary. Yeah. Or not not necessary. It probably is. Or what you're going to do once you do that. Yeah. Yeah. What would you use it for? What's what's the application of that taxonomy? I, and why do you need value and source of data? I think our limited expertise in this area uh, doesn't allow us to make that jump. If you worked in this area and you heard that. Just as traditional trade regimes require goods and services to be priced and their origins defined, so too must this framework create a taxonomy to classify data flows by value and source. If you worked in this area, you'd say, oh, you would do that because the next step is this. But he's not saying it explicitly, right? Right. He Again, probably he's looking at the bigger picture, what needs to be done as a shell framework organizational structure kind of thing or 
uh, a strategic structure globally. And once that's done, this will be the value and source taxonomy will be at, uh, uh, an outgrowth of that. Yeah. And he understands that. And people in the area all understand that. But that's not necessary at this level of argument. Yes. Or it's like a fundamental principle of international trade theory and agreements is to classify the value chain by source and value. You know what I mean? So exactly, that's that's yeah. something you do in every free trade agreement. So we should do that here. And you're like, why? And it's like, because every free trade agreement requires that to work. And it's like, okay, I don't know that because I've never negotiated a free trade agreement before. And he could probably say, oh, okay, well, he write another series of papers that just define that. Yeah, go I'm sure. or go read an economics could. tech book or go read, you know, the literature right. on the philosophy of free trade. And we don't understand that. But for him, no. it's like, oh, you just do that. It's just something you do. So uh, from my ignorance, uh, not understanding that, I will respect him because he's an expert. Yeah. Instead of touting how stupid that is, because that's what people do, and that's what people are doing today. Yeah, if you watch any media show, so I mean, I'm going to defer to this guy. I don't run a 140 billion dollar investment fund. No. This guy's made I'll it pretty far in life. I'll defer to him too. You're right, David. Um, oh, also, you know the the international business guy at Dartmouth. He's he probably knows a thing or two about international business. That's my. He does. That's my uh, hunch. Okay, that's Slaughter. Slaughter is the international business guy. Uh, McCormick is the, what's the name of that group? Bridgewater Associates. Bridge, Bridgewater Associates. Okay. The innovation imperative. Shall we get back to the article so that we can sort of finish in a reasonable amount of time? Yep. Last last section. Oh, it is? Okay. Let's, yep. let's finish off the article. We'll have a brief discussion. We'll get out of here within the next 15, 20 minutes. Sound good? Sounds good. Let's do it. The innovation let's imperative. At this time of uncertainty about both the future of international institutions and the United States' commitment to them, orchestrating the creation of this framework would bring Washington many opportunities to partner closely with like-minded countries, to reform and rejuvenate calcified institutions, and to strengthen U.S. economic power and national security. Indeed, this framework could serve as an important component of a renewed vision of the United States' role in the world. It would be a vision that recognizes the need to cultivate strong multilateral institutions of like-minded nations to stabilize an entropic world, but that does not lose sight of the United States' economic and security interests, that upholds U.S. leadership, but never at the expense of Americans, and that confidently sees the country as a force for good. There is little doubt that the United States and its allies would face challenges in establishing an international data framework. The landscape today is characterized by a patchwork of inconsistent and vague data standards, and the initial countries and sectors involved would need to work through a thicket of various national data regulations. Some countries would no doubt choose to close themselves off and refuse to share their data. Americans, meanwhile, face deep political divisions, and many of them view global engagement with skepticism. And yet, this framework would boost innovation and the United States' strategic position in an era of trying economic conditions at home and great power competition abroad. Those are the benefits that American leaders must communicate to the American people. If creating an international data framework proved too difficult, 
Washington and its partners could build on existing efforts to address data flows and security. In 2020, the Trump administration created the Clean Network to strengthen data partnerships abroad, empower domestic innovation, and protect data privacy. Likewise, a year earlier, the G20 leaders produced the Osaka Track vision for data-free flow with trust, an initiative to produce a coherent international data framework. And the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development is laying the intellectual foundation for a similar effort. The United States could also build on momentum within the Quad, its cooperative partnership with Australia, India, and Japan, to advance the shared goals of innovation and security. But these would merely be stopgap measures. What is really needed is a major push for a cohesive framework. In July 1944, just weeks after the D-Day invasion, and with the outcome of World War II still hanging in the balance, the United States hosted delegates from 43 like-minded nations in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, for a conference to agree on new rules for the post-war international monetary system. Out of this gathering came the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, institutions designed to help rebuild the world after a devastating conflict. In the wake of another crisis, the United States once again has the opportunity to establish new international rules that support peace, prosperity, and security. The question is whether it will rise to the challenge. Bum, bum, bum. There we go. Interesting. So... That doesn't seem too much of an imperative to me. I think that that's like saying in the 1940s, 1930s, I mean, let's say the U.S., we shouldn't have anything to do with any of the oil producing countries. You know, I think that he's saying data is the, you know, it's not the new oil because it's non-rival, but we had our fingers in every oil producing country across the globe, you know? And and we sort of formulated the rules, the framework that sort of governed the international flow of goods and services and commodities. And now data is a new commodity and we don't have a framework to help us govern that. And he says, you know, if you look at Bretton Woods and you look at sort of the United States' guiding hand throughout the post-war period... We saw what was important in the international economic system, and we established rules and frameworks that allowed it everyone to benefit, but also for ourselves to benefit. Now, if we don't do that with data, someone else may write those rules and will be beholden to them, and they'll be to our detriment. I think that's what he's saying. He's just talking about data, though. Mm -hmm. And so... Suppose you do have data free flowing worldwide, global, global data, it's flowing free, full across, across the globe. Mm -hmm. And everybody has the same data. Uh, is everyone going to have the same benefit of that data? No. No. The people who have the technology to analyze the data to create new innovative type AI and machine learning and neural networks, they're gonna have the advantage. 
And so if we have their data, then that helps us globally, mm -hmm. not just domestically. So having the data domestically helps us domestically to, to become strong. But in order to be, to be strong globally, we have to have global data. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to convince the global community that they will have the same level of benefits as the countries that are more advanced technologically. Mm -hmm. see, what I'm, see what I'm getting at? Well, I think it's also like you can have a seat at the table or you can be completely shut out from this. You know what I mean? That's sort of, you don't have to convince them that they have the same benefits. You can convince them that they have a place, that their voice will be heard. And yeah, I mean, they won't be equal by virtue of their size, by virtue of their impact. But the alternative is they don't even get a shot to be in the room. Anyway, it's interesting problem mm -hmm. that uh, to me, the the uh, imperative that he is he's backing up and saying, OK, let's all come together uh, and let's let's have a free exchange of data. Uh, well, data is power. Uh, but the data isn't powerful unless you understand the data. OK, uh, in other words, uh, security is having not just data, but having the right data in the right form with the right interpretation of what that data means. Mm -hmm. And uh, in other words, if we have data from the other countries and uh, we know how to put that data together, uh, then that data then becomes constructs and and hypotheses and and results and uh, in innovative results. Uh, maybe I'm getting off track here, but this this imperative just didn't seem uh, as universally beneficial as when it started. Uh, yeah, we have free data is power, uh, but power for whom? I I remember. I guess, but here's the thing. This framework, you say, oh, it's going to funnel power to the people that are already powerful. And that's the United States and, um, you know, the powerful people in the United States and the powerful people in the EU and it may do it to the detriment of China because they won't accede to a sharing program like this. And so it'll bolster. It's a power centric and. And I guess the alternative is, like you're saying, well, to whose benefit is that if you don't have it and you go with a hodgepodge patchwork of rules, a country like China with its own enclosed ecosystem that's exporting it with their Silk Road initiative or whatever, they may actually grow more powerful than us. And their elites may be able to buy out Bridgewater and Associates or, you know, you know, do a hostile takeover of the fund. Or And so it's like we need to sort of work to sort of protect U.S. assets. And you say, well, is that the right goal? It's like, well, it's a goal. Um, having no goal is is worse. True. Absolutely true. I I agree with that. But what I'm saying is, as I'm I'm questioning the imperative of what you just said, let's let's share the data. 
so we can all have the same data, uh, but we're not going to necessarily share our analytics of the data. No, but but, but I guess you're getting into the weeds. It's like there's no framework now. There should be a framework. There and should be. And, and that doesn't mean we're going to share all the data. I'm sure there's going to be data we don't share. There's going to be some, you know, there's going to be, that's the weeds. It's just that there should be a framework. I think that's, that's the point. It's not, let's share all the data and that'll be the framework. It's the framework will be an agreement among everyone about how the data should be shared instead of this ragtag hodgepodge patchwork of, of agreements between individual parties. Well, I, I agree, David. I'm agreeing with that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm challenging is his innovative imperative. I says, if you want this to move forward, you don't you don't use the argument like it's going to make us strong. You use the argument that it's going to bring us together and everyone's going to benefit from this. So he's I don't see him saying that here. Mm -hmm. uh, where does he say it's going to we're going to become stronger, but everyone's going to be benefited from this? I guess he's trying yeah. to sort of equate it to the Bretton Woods conference. Or, you know, the Marshall Plan. Post-World War II, the world was devastated. And we sort of formed an international framework about how we lend money to states that need it to rebuild their economies. And we got together and we formed a framework for that. So we weren't just spending money hand over fist. Um, the countries that weren't as ravaged by World War II, like the United States, because there's no combat here. Uh, so, you know... There's the Marshall Plan, but there's also these lasting international institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. And he's saying, mm -hmm. as a result, that has helped the world for 60 years. That's right. And I'm saying, just as that helped the world back then with what they did, mm -hmm. let's have the same effects here, but not necessarily the same type of agreements. And there's a, there's lots of you know liberal thinkers that say, did the IMF and World Bank really help the world? Is there a way that they could have structured their balance of payments, bailouts, or their individual loans to countries that didn't fundamentally, you know, make these countries a worse place? Like, is there a better model than that? That's the model they came up with, and we think they could have done better. There's people that argue that. And, and I think in some cases it would have been better. In some cases it would have been worse. But... It was what it was because they established a framework. Uh, they did something. Yes. <laughs> I, to me, maybe a good takeaway for me from this article is that the imperative is not exactly what you do, but do something. Mm -hmm. Don't do nothing. Uh, start moving with some type of a, a structure, some type of a... The imperative is let's look at some regulations and handling this data. Uh, because if you don't handle it, it's going to get out of control. Mm -hmm. uh, but then how you approach that. Uh, the devil's in the details. Yeah, the devil's in the details. And also how the, America, how the United States approaches this and how the United States partners with, you know, the EU, with, uh, with different countries all and over the world. Our Southeast Asian allies. S Southeast Asian allies. Korean Pacific allies, allies, yeah. Yeah, uh, even the even even the South American, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how we partner with them uh, is going to be going to be critical, and a data could be the impetus for uh, 
having partnerships that's going to benefit everybody. I, I think a, a new thinking is not isolationism. A new thinking is is uh, the non-zero-sum game of everyone uh, is going to a win-win. Mm-hmm. And ho- hopefully that's going to be the approach in the future. Not, not a zero-sum game where I win because you lose. It's just, no, let's come together where it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's the direction we're going. And hopefully that's the imperative uh, that's going to lead uh, whatever decisions are being made uh, from these data, from from uh, uh, having uh, different uh, uh, handling the data better yes. worldwide. And I don't think they really got into wonky policy specifics here. They said there's right. no framework and a framework should exist. And I think that on some level, we can all agree with them, right? I Yes, I Absolutely. On some level, yes, we can agree with that. And where we start to deviate is the first second we start talking about the details of how that works. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. right. So let's come to together and agree in principle that, yes, we do need uh, some type of structure in handling this data and uh, collecting the data, sharing data. Mm -hmm. We do need we do need some kind of some kind of a partnership here. That is needed. Mm-hmm. How we do it, uh, that's for s- smart smart minds, uh, just like uh, Slaughter and McCormick and other people, to come together how to do it. And I'm hoping that uh, people, that this should not be a political thing. Uh, it should be a global type of uh, benefit. Oh, but it will be a political thing. Because I, th- be. I think that when you craft sort of a framework like this, the people with the biggest stakes are sovereign governments and multi-billion-dollar or trillion-dollar corporations. So the and results, the, the results of this framework will be the people in the world, the the entities in the world with the most power, the institutions in the world with the most power, the U.S. government, the German government, Facebook, Alphabet, like they all stand to gain or lose from minute differences in the rules. So it will be political. But I it think- will be. I think, in order for this to happen, what I was saying was that, yes, it will be benefiting them, but then in order to get the data for them to have that power to benefit the world, you have to have benefit to the people who are not the powerful. Mm-hmm. And if you can have them, uh, if you can have a win-win kind of a thing, uh, approach in your tactics and also your strategies, then you're going to get the 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 buy-in from the people uh, and also the countries and the smaller smaller operatives. Uh, it's just going to be powerful. Yeah, I find with any great undertaking, you could say it's easy to say yes. I think we need that, and then it's easy to say and here's all the reasons why it won't work. Um, it's easier to find reasons why it won't work than reasons why it will. You can see the good that it'll do, but you can also see this, the stumbling blocks when you look at an implementation of a fundamental change to how things are done worldwide. So it takes a lot of audacity, it takes a lot of courage, um, it takes a lot of power to sort of initiate a change like this. Yeah. And so and we'll what I'm s- saying... Oh, go ahead. What I'm saying is that, yeah, to make this kind of change... Uh, you say, yes, we all agree that we should move in this direction. But then when you look at the details, 
it's all on your side and not theirs. Mm -hmm. And I say, in order for this to be successful, let's look at a win-win on both sides moving forward, because that is a much stronger uh, result and much higher benefit uh, where you have a win-win approach than, yeah, let's move forward to where I'm going to win more than you. So let, let's let's try to have as much balancing out of everybody winning as we can. I think that's a good place to stop for today, don't you think? Yeah, it's a good article. It's a very important topic. Mm-hmm. It's not going away. It's going to grow in importance, complexity, and it's going to grow in... Uh, uh, everyone's going to see the value in it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, thank you to Matthew J. Slaughter and David H. McCormick for your insights to foreign affairs, for giving us something to talk about for the last 90 minutes. I am signing off for the day. Is there anything you'd like to leave the people with? Yeah, we want to say keep on talking, uh, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. <laughs>